0: Hello and welcome to the Home of Medicine podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm a consultant in acute and general medicine in the United Kingdom. And today I'm joined by
1: Hi, my name is Ben Lovell. I am also a consultant in acute and general medicine working in London.
0: Thank you for joining me today, Ben. As a it's brilliant to have you on board I am going to discuss a case
1: go for it
0: so this was again quite recent um, in the last few weeks and it was early morning and I was the acute medical consultant on call so for that I tend to cover the medical decisions unit however sometimes we have lots of people in the emergency department who are unwell and need a senior review on this particular day, there were 33 patients to see in the emergency department, which was a huge number of patients. And there was me and I, for any one in the world, I am never going to see that many patients properly and be able to make decisions. So the reason why this was a very difficult day is um, I went to see my the first uh, patient. She was a 51 year old female who had quite significant past medical history of note. She had previous strokes in the past, which had led to a dense hemiparesis on the right side. She was actually a resident in a nursing home because of the strokes. However, she was still able to function pretty well, aside from the hemiparesis. In addition to that, she had a very heavy alcohol intake, and was still drinking around a bottle of vodka per day. so a huge amount. In addition to that, she had seizure activity. Now it was never really identified whether the seizure activity was due to the previous stroke damage on the brain, or was it due to alcohol withdrawal seizures? And no, it was never very clear, it probably was a crossover of both. So I was asked to see the patient on the morning um, to make a decision about end-of-life care. And I was, okay, I need to go back to the beginning. I need to figure out, you know, what's the picture here? You know, Really, is that the decision that I need to make? Or do I need to think, what else do I need to be able to do physically for this patient? So as I detailed, those, that was her past medical history of notes. She'd been admitted the night before with increased seizure activity and what looked like overwhelming sepsis, actually. We're unsure of the sepsis. Could have been aspiration pneumonia, could be urinary. She had a long-term catheter in, but she was very, very sick. And when I walked into the resuscitation department, she was very, very unwell. She was very tachycardic at 122 beats per minute. Her blood pressure systolic was 80, so pretty low. Her respiratory rate was very high. So she was fulfilling the sepsis criteria. She looked really poorly in bed. You know, when you look at the end of the bed and you think, oh, you look really poorly. And I looked through the nights of the doctor who'd seen him overnight and they'd done everything. They had treated the sepsis, treated the seizures, you name it. Everything had been done. Discussion with the intensive care units, everything. I think that the, the doctor who'd seen him had done a fantastic job and literally had done everything possible. And I had a lot of staff in the A&E going, is going to make her end of life? You're going to come on. Somebody's got to make the decision because, you know, she's not getting any better. She lives in a nursing home, you know, it's what the family wants. I was like, okay, um, I don't know this patient. I don't know the family. I need to do a full assessment of the patient in front of me. And I need to have a conversation with the family. This is really important. I can't have a conversation with the patient because she wasn't conscious at that point. Her GCS was reduced. So I assessed the patient. And yes, she was very unwell. But I needed to speak to the family. So I contacted the family. And the response I got was, can people please stop calling me at home? Um, you know, I'm not married to this individual. Um, I don't really want anything to do with with the case. Um, and I've been saying for years that she shouldn't really be living anymore. And I was like, "Whoa, okay. Um, that is not the response I expected at all. And wow, it just felt overwhelming. Um, what was best for the patient? The relative didn't seem to want to engage and that was the next difficulty who had got written on the notes. I, I don't really know. I didn't know what to do.
1: What are your thoughts? Did you say she was
0: 53?
1: 51. She was, so still very young. Um, okay, well, a, a very sick, possibly terminally unwell, multi-morbid patient with sepsis. Fine. I'm intrigued by this st- statement, can you make her end of life? Uh, well, uh, I, I yeah. don't have that power. and I it, Either the patient is or, or isn't. And, and I'm not quite sure. What do people mean when they say, can you make her I know. end of life?
0: and i heard that phrase so many times that day and Did it they was see
1: establishing a certain treatment plan or was there a document or something or
0: i think what they wanted to happen or you know was palliation palliation was this patient receiving the best possible care the kindest possible care mm. Would the kindest thing and the best thing for the patient be to allow a natural dignified death.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: And I, at the at that moment in time, I assessed the patient, couldn't get hold of the. I spoke to a family member. They said, I'm not going to talk about it now. I'm coming in at three o'clock in the afternoon. It was nine o'clock in the morning. And I said, actually, I don't have enough information here at the moment to diagnose dying. I don't feel confident and comfortable enough doing it. So I'm going to continue with the current management plan of treating the sepsis, supporting the blood pressure, giving the antibiotics, continue with catheterization, continue with active treatment, which the night team had done and I felt was appropriate. And when the family comes in later on in the day, I will have a discussion with the family and we will make a plan together. We will have an open and honest conversation about what is going on.
1: Okay, I think I think that we 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 need a um, a language change around around palliative medicine and all this sort of yes, thing.
0: Absolutely.
1: Some of the phrases that get thrown around belie a misunderstanding about the nature of palliative medicine. Um, for example, are they for active treatment? Palliative treatment is active. I I don't understand. What is it? Is it passive treatment to give them a syringe driver and painkillers? I don't understand. So active treatment, I think, is open to wildly different interpretations. I think if we were going to make more focused questions about your patient here is would be what should the ceilings of treatment be for this patient? Number one, are they for invasive organ support, uh, ventilation, vasopressors to help with the sepsis? Or are they for w- the ward as the ceiling of the treatment that we give, which is IV treatment, oxygen possibly NIV if indicated if if or or not. I think that's an, that's a good conversation to have. Um, and I think that is a much more clear question than have you made them end of life? Are they for active treatment? I just don't, I don't get on with those statements, because they don't have much meaning for me, or rather, they have too many meanings, depending Mm -hmm. on who's listening to them. So Mm -hmm. I think establishing the limits of your treatment with the patient, um, so they're not exposed to unnecessary harms, which will not work, I think is a great discussion to be had. Um, And that, of course, includes, if they die of sepsis, or they die as an endpoint, do we attempt to cardio um contribute attempt respiratory um resuscitation or or do we not do that and that's part of what the treatments are on. I think those are clear questions which which need to be answered within a relatively short time frame because it sounds that she could be terminating well within the next few hours. I also think there is still a very binary thought process as therefore therefore treatment for the sepsis or therefore palliative care. palliative care is a very complex um specialty. And part of treatment can involve giving fluids and antibiotics. That can still be part of really good treatment of someone who was at the end of their life. And I think we have to remember that palliative care p- for people now is r- responsive to the patient rather than prescriptive. We, you and I remember the Liverpool Care Pathway from, was it the early thousands? Um, A long time
0: ago, yeah, absolutely.
1: It was an idea that if, if you or I or anyone decided the patient was dying, they were put on the LCP which said no fluids, no antibiotics, just a a cocktail of morphomidazolam anti-secretary medications. And so then of course, death became a foretold conclusion because we withdrew everything else. And the reason why that was binned and we now have much more responsive pathways and and treatment care plans in progress is that we look at the patient in front of us and say, what does this patient now to be um, out of pain, out of distress, what other treatments they need, and anything can go. You can give them anything which you think will be helpful to that patient. You can even say, I've only just clocked this patient. I ha- I can't get a sense of whether they're dying or not, which is what you said, because dying can be quite slippery to diagnose, I, I find, even with, with my years of experience. I think we keep giving them the antibiotics. We keep giving them the fluids. We, but we can also, if they are in a lot of pain, give them a bit of morphine. If they're suffering from terrible di- uh, distress or agitation, we can give them a bit of midazolam. But it doesn't mean that we are doing the livable care pathway and that's all they're going to, to get. Um, and I wonder if it's a legacy of that, that people still find this either-or thinking, this binary thinking. Like well, I don't understand. Why are you giving oxygen? I thought they were dying. We're not doing OBS anymore. You know, we don't, we yeah. don't think about that anymore. We think about what's my patient, this patient, this human being in front mm-hmm. of me, what do they need mm-hmm. now? Mm-hmm. And it could be a very wide variety of treatments. It's,
0: yeah, it's. I genuinely find it the most difficult part of my job. As an acute physician is diagnosing somebody who's dying. Mm. And if they are dying, is that dying going to be imminent or is it days or weeks?
1: Mm. So that's what relatives really don't they? They want to know. Do they I want st- to know?
0: And that's the question yeah, I'm asked.
1: Should I spend go Or will it be? It, it, it's difficult to, We always get it I wrong, see, I feel like.
0: Always get it wrong. And it's that's I'm just going to throw something else in the mix now, um, which made the day more challenging so I went to see a 63 uh, year old gentleman in recess um, after this lady who I'd seen and I'd decided at the time whether right or wrong but at the time the right time for her was to carry on with active treatment I needed to talk to the family I needed to have an open and honest conversation I needed to find out a lot more information and they were going to come in and we we're going to have this conversation so that was okay I moved on to patient number two of the day. He was in the resuscitation area. He was a 63-year-old gentleman who wasn't normally looked after in the hospital where we were at. And in fact, had all of his care at a different hospital, but had come to us overnight because he had ECG changes suggestive of a STEMI. He had a background history of hepatocellular carcinoma, which was for no further Chemotherapy or any further oncological treatment. And the decision had been made by the oncology team that he was for palliative treatment only from the perspective of his malignancy. He was at a local hospital and was sent over to us, as I say, with a query STEMI. But when he came, his potassium was over eight. And the ECG changes suggestive of a STEMI were actually hyperkalemia. He had a tall tented T wave. He had a low flat P wave and he had had a very broad, bizarre QRS complex, all suggestive of hyperkalemia. He was seen by the cardiology team who said, this isn't a STEMI. This is hyperkalemia. Treat the hyperkalemia. So overnight, the same doctor who'd seen the other lady I'd just seen had seen this gentleman and again set an excellent management plan in place and had treated all of his acute medical problems appropriately. So he treated the hyperkalemia In addition to that, he got an acute kidney injury with a very high urea and a very high creatinine. And his liver function was also abnormal. So he had an INR, which was two. He had a climbing bilirubin and a climbing ALFOS and ALT. And it all sort of fits a hepatorenal syndrome type picture. And I saw him and he looked unwell, as you'd expect a gentleman with all of these things going on. But he was very chatty, sitting up in bed, looked incredibly, you know, well, you know, it's really interesting. And um, so I took a history and I examined him, he had very large, tense ascites, which was causing quite a lot of discomfort, actually. And my concern was, does he have spontaneous bacterial peritonitis as well? Now, do I need to be thinking about sepsis and treating that? So he had liver failure renal failure possible sepsis from sbp there was a little bit of encephalopathy as well a little bit of confusion but was okay and somebody asked the question is this gentleman dying and i was i was like well i don't know again i, I don't know it, i've two patients in a row so i'd seen patient number 1 then patient number 2 and i was being asked the same questions for both cases And again, I was asked to diagnose dying or recognize a dying patient. And I identified quite a big, maybe not a gap in my knowledge, but more like I don't feel comfortable making this diagnosis, actually. And what I did is I spoke to the renal team and I got the renal team to come down from a renal perspective. I got the gastro team to come down from a gastro perspective. And I spoke to the family and his wife was... I'm on my way, but I live a long way away. We live closer to the other hospital. I don't have transport, and I said that's okay. Don't worry about it. You're coming in at four o'clock this afternoon. I'll have a chat to you then. What are your thoughts? Okay. Apart from I'm having a very good day. <laughs>
1: oh my God, tell me you took a tea break after those two patients. You know,
0: I was, I was with an, a really fantastic trainee doctor, and she was so lovely and so like supportive. She was like. Would you like a coffee? Would you like well, a
1: welcome to a few medicine. I think also <laughs> really, they, they need to see us taking breaks. So they know that that's something that, that you should do. I think there's a bit of role modelling. Yeah, there. Like these, yeah these absolutely. Let's just take 10, 10 seconds just to breathe out. It,
0: oh, but, gosh, it's so overwhelming.
1: But diagnosing death. So it, it is hard. And what I um, sometimes, I mean, there are clinical features. Sometimes, you know. Um, have they got cold mottled peripheries? Are they so uh, consciously depressed? They, their airways gone? They're rattling. Sometimes that, that they they are good clinical clues, but sometimes you just don't know. And I say so often, I can actually hear myself saying in meetings, "This patient may may not die on this hospital admission, but um, I have I need a sense of a trajectory. I can't make that diagnosis based on a snapshot. So we'll admit them, and maybe when I see them on the ward round tomorrow, I'll see their trend." And I'll be able to make a clearer decision about whether or not I think they are dying. Um, So, again, it needs a bit of vitamin T, a bit of vitamin, a bit of time. And sometimes when you see them the second time and you can compare them to how they were yesterday, that's when you either say they're a bit better or they are way worse, or they're still the same. And sometimes I'll say, I still need a bit more time, I can adduce other people's opinions. Uh, you know, I, like, as you did get to get a more of an MDT approach. And where I work, I can get a fantastic team called the transforming end of life care team, who are a sub group of the palliative care team, and they can come and give us their expert opinion as well. And sometimes they say too early to tell, but it would not be a bad thing to prepare anticipatory medications, to warn the family that it may not have a positive outcome, to begin thinking about what's important to the patient if this is their last hours and last days. Um, but yes, yeah, a snapshot diagnosis of dying is, is I think, very, very hard to do in a patient who's talking to you. I just, I, I need more time. They may yeah. die of submission, but I, I can't make that judgment call here. I, let, let's see what they're like tomorrow and I'll know the trajectory.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that is exactly what I thought. But I felt it was so overwhelming that I was being asked to make decisions about two very similar patients who were both young. And it was just really difficult. And I went away for about 10 minutes. I think I saw somebody else because I needed time to think actually. Um, And I also was waiting for the real team to finish their assessment, the gastroenterological team to finish their assessment. So I went away, I saw another patient, gave me a bit of time to think. And when I went back to see Patient number two, he'd made a dramatic change. He had deteriorated so much in 30 minutes. Like it was massive. Um, not surprising with a potassium of eight, which we were actively treating with all the appropriate medication. I'd even done a ultrasound guided acidic tap to find out whether there was any bacterial peritonitis. You know, we were really trying to support and treat everything that was going on. But the the deterioration was huge so I I phoned his wife again on from the emergency department and I said I'm so sorry I know I've just called you and I know it was only like 30 40 minutes ago so there's been a real deterioration of the change in your husband and she said to me his wife is he dying do I need to come in now do I need to bring all the family in and I was like "I I don't I don't know like and I often find that we are asked by relatives that question, are they dying? And if so, how long will it be?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's almost like they want, which I get, you know, is it going to be 10 minutes? Is it going to be 10 hours? Is it going to be 10 days? Because they need to gather family, mm-hmm. I guess, to come and see. And my response was, I can't say exactly. However, he's deteriorated very, very quickly. And he looks very, very unwell. Mm-hmm. He said, should I come in now? And I was like, yes. Should I bring all the family? yes because i wasn't
1: yeah. i would
0: rather the family be there Lord. if you know they're not so they all arrived i mean there was about 20 members of the family who arrived um and i had a very open and honest conversation with his wife and i said the deterioration has been very quick and she said he's been suffering for 2 years now through this he's time it's time to let go he needs to go and but he looked he looked so well it was just overwhelming I think for the family and for the members of staff who were looking after him and we moved into a different room because he didn't actually need the resuscitation area anymore and his family turned up he woke up and he chatted to every single member of his family and me and his wife stood back and were watching and we both said it's almost like he's saying his goodbyes to all the different relatives that were there and I went away went back and he was back asleep again and looked very peaceful. And I, again, I was being asked the question by lots of staff and, and members of the family. Is this it? What are we going to do? And I guess the thing that I think would be helpful to discuss is how do we tell when somebody is dying? How do we know? Do we ever know? Because you you can diagnose a heart attack from an ECG, from a blood test, from a history. But it's not like that. It's not tangible when you're diagnosing somebody who's dying. There is no symptom list. There is no blood test. And I just felt like, I don't know, it was really hard, really challenging to make that that so call.
1: I think you're right. But when we when we talk about whether someone's dying or not, we, we move into a world of probabilities and we find ourselves saying to relatives things like, they may rally. But I would not be surprised if, based on my experience if he passed away within the next hours or maybe short days after now, and I have been in every combination i so i have I brought families in and prepared them for the worst. The next day the patient's sitting up eating cornflakes they get discharged two days later, which is great. you know this is great they've got some more time um but some families react funny to, you know, you, you scared us, you scared the life out of us. We brought everybody in. My cousin flew over from Canada and he didn't die. You know, they, and, and they 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 do expect a bit more exactitude than we're able to offer. I've been in cases where I've said they're, um, they've they made a fantastic improvement today. Why don't you guys go home and get some sleep? We'll call you. if any change? And an hour later after they've left the hospital, the patient just slips away. Um, and they've come back and they said, and I I picked up certain sort of cultural things about this. People have saying that patients often do suddenly perk up before they die. It sounds like what your guy did. They sometimes rally Mm -hmm. a little bit and they sit up and they have a cup of tea and then they they pass away soon after. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems very, I think it's so common that people will sit with a dying relative in hospital for so long, when they go to get a coffee or a meal or they go home to get changed, they die and i've yeah. heard uh, like nurses say oh it's very common it's almost as like the page, he didn't want to die in front of you he wanted mm-hmm. wanted to do it on his own you know these are sometimes you, they're quite twee things that we say but they mm-hmm. they come from it happening frequently enough for it to be developed yeah, as absolutely. a cultural stereotype so and i you've heard this as well this sort of thing
0: yeah I, and you know i that actual um situation with this gentleman is i actually did say that to the family because there was so and and I did say, you know, actually, sometimes what happens is the family leaves, and then people drift away peacefully and calmly when they've said their goodbyes. And it it did seem like he perked up. He said he did say his goodbyes. He was, you know, to his family, and then majority of the family left. His wife stayed, and his mom stayed, and there was a his, his son stayed, and there was a few people there. And it was about how we. Was he dying? You know, should I be stopping active treatment? So, so that was the question as well that the wife wanted answering. At the moment, you are treating the potassium. We are treating for spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. We are treating the liver problems. I was giving him vitamin K for the high INR. So I was giving lots and lots of active treatment. He had lots of cannulas into him, and his wife said to me, "Is this the right thing to do?" Mm -hmm. And I said, "If I stop all of these treatments." The chances are that this will be a terminal event mm-hmm. and that he won't survive. Mm. If we carry on with the treatment, he could survive a couple more days, Yeah, maybe longer. But I don't know. I, I, I can't answer that question. And she was very clear that the family wanted and he'd expressed wishes before that he wanted a natural, dignified death. Mm-hmm. And that actually the invasive cannulas and all this, if it came to it, he didn't want anymore.
1: And if that's coming from the patient, that's a very clear signal, I guess. Very
0: powerful. Yeah.
1: I, I know what you mean. I, I remember sometimes when I'm treating patients who who are very labile blood sugars and I say, look, I think they're dying. We can stop doing blood sugars. But what if they get a hypo like they did yesterday, 1.1? We could give get a bit of dextrose and they might wake up and have a cup yeah. of Isn't it. It's like, oh, I guess you're right. Well, I guess we could stop doing obs except for blood sugars, but that seems weird. Why would I check blood sugars on someone was dying? And it can be hard to to get the path right because it, they're complicated paths. And I often phrase it to families as, "I'm gonna I'm gonna re- refocus my treatment. I'm gonna treat them actively, but I'm gonna treat their symptoms, and I'm not going to treat um the, what I think is driving the symptoms because I don't think it's gonna buy them any time or any good time." And I don't think it will change the outcome of this admission. Um, And I think that's a very honest thing to say uh, and see how people take that on board. Some people find that intolerable. Some people find that absolutely the right thing to do. So you have to have it, it takes a lot of time and you have to keep having conversations over and over. Mm. People forget things, they don't take things in in the stress of the moment. The Absolutely. other half of the family all turn up and they need a doctor's, Um. Uh, they want to know as well, and they might disagree with the first bit of the family. It's very, very time intensive, mm. um, but there's no real way around it. And sometimes the patient will give you strong signals they are dying, they will drop their GCS, they will get that rattle, they They will stop interacting. And then and and you can say, I think we're looking at mm. hours rather than days here. But sometimes they stay alert. We have um, the care plan here and um, the excellence care plan for people at the end of life. And it's a care plan. I'm always drilling people. People say, Oh, are they on the care path? No, no, no. It's not a pathway. A pathway indicates there is a set course. I'm going to force this patient down with a set destination. It's a care plan and it's responsive to the patient. Just be careful with our language. People have long memories and people remember the Liverpool care plan. Mm. So I say the care. So, and that usually means don't do bloods because it's painful and I have put people within the framework of the care plan and then taken them off it a few days later when they've been too, they've perked out. But I said, OK, mm-hmm. you don't need let's do a blood test today um, yeah. and see what the bloods are looking like. But in recent memory, I had a patient who I said to the family, I, I don't see her going home. I think she will die this admission. I'm duty bound to be honest with you, prepare you for this. You know, hope you hope you understand that. And we're not going to do any more blood tests. After four days with the patient sort of sitting there chatting and eating, I was like, I wonder if she is dying after all. I'm going to do a blood test today, which is outside, you know, what you would normally do for, for someone who we said, let's just treat them symptomatically. Did a blood test. Her sodium was like 191. I was like, oh, okay, no, I think she is, she is dying. And that was a useful biochemical marker. Just to be clear, hypernatremia does not diagnose dying. But as with all the other information in that particular case, that was a really useful marker that she had lost sodium homeostasis, which you do see in terminally frail patients. And I went, okay, no, it, it is right. No, no more blood tests after now. I feel more, more certain that, that we're in the right pathway. So I think the most important thing to say, it is not one size fits all. If you think someone is or could be dying, you have to see them on a day by day basis, be able to keep your mind open and challenge your previous assumptions and maybe reflect and re diagnose mm. people if they're not following a certain path where you thought they would. And be mm. able to go back to the draw board and say, well, look, why do we do things a bit differently today? Because they're, they're taking a slightly different path as the one I want. Mm. I, and I'm honest with patients when they say, how long? I say doctors are notoriously um, bad at predicting. Yeah. That. I said, your, your father, your husband, whoever it is, they will do things in their own time. They will do things in their own time. And, and I don't know what that will be. All I can say is I think the end point will be this. I, I don't see them surviving. And I and I, and I mm-hmm. want to be honest with you and tell you that. And I think whatever it's days, whenever it's hours, we just make sure they are as comfortable and as happy as we can make them. And that, that is good palliative care. Mm.
0: Yeah. And I mean, he was the, what was really challenging about this case um is we were trying to do all of this in a very busy ed department and it didn't feel like the right environment for the family and the and the patient to be honest it was pretty noisy It was you know it's just chaotic yeah. um and we got him into the into we just moved him out of recess as i say he didn't need it anymore and the family were there and um one of the nurses came up to me um I'd, I'd had a conversation with the relatives and we were in agreement that actually stopping the treatment for the hyperkalemia and the sepsis was the right thing to do Mm -hmm. and they were very clear that they wanted to allow and this was going along with the patient's wishes a natural dignified peaceful death yeah and that's what they wanted to happen so we'd had this conversation and i had stopped the medication that we'd been giving him And I had prescribed anticipatory medications if required. So I'd prescribed some morphine, some midazolam, some hyacinth in case, you know, he was in distress. And I stopped these. We stopped the active treatment. And he had these periods of lucidity and chatting and then drifting away. And nurses were wandering past who were looking after him saying, he's not dying. You've got it wrong. Look at him. He's sitting up. He's chatting. You've just stopped all his treatment. Do you think that was the right thing to do? And I was like, oh, God, I don't know if this is the right thing to do. But it feels like it was the right thing to do. The family were on board. And that was another challenge as to how to manage the expectations of the members of staff as well. Mm -hmm. Because it's very hard to also nurse a patient who is at the end of their life, Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly because they didn't think that it was the right thing to do. So it really highlighted the importance of communicating the decision to the family, but also having an open, honest conversation with the nursing staff
1: mm-hmm. and
0: explaining why I'd made the decisions and why I was doing what I was doing.
1: Well, it was great that you have this relationship with your nursing colleagues. They're able to come and and say things like that. That you, they, oh, you know, yeah. they're, they're able to <laughs> approach and say, uh, are you sure? But then, of course... Oh, yeah the downside of that is you have to be firm firm in your conviction i mean it it's it's fine for people to double check if people are approaching you in, yeah. in a professional manner and saying i wonder if this is the right thing to do because i've noticed this that can be really useful information if you are the senior decision maker for that patient yeah. um and something to answer is I, I appreciate that that was part of my decision making i see where you're coming from however i i'm we're going to do this uh, and i think this is the right thing to do and that's part of the progression through training isn't it and, and developing your skills as a senior Physician as a consultant and um, being able to make your decisions and then be convicted enough to stand by them whilst remaining op- open to other people's perspectives.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. It was, and the the story of this gentleman is that we did take down all of the medication that we'd been prescribed. Um, he was moved to a different area, a lot quieter, on our admissions unit, and he passed away that evening very peacefully. Sounds like his good. family around, So it was, you know, he did the right thing at the right time and he was in the right place and his family, I went to the family, it was about nine o'clock in the evening, had been moved down and um, he was incredibly peaceful and his family were very happy with the decisions that had been made. Again, I think it was what was really interesting about these two cases is that they were basically same location seen one after another. Um, and both of them, I felt like I was being asked to make a very difficult decision about are they dying or not and obviously it's not it's not binary it's not a yes or no decision um, and then it made me think about are we trained to diagnose a dying patient I don't think we are at medical school and unfortunately on the day in question we didn't have many people from the palliative care team around to help um, it was just one of those days when people were on annual leave and things like that so I didn't have that support because they weren't around,
1: hmm.
0: um, and that was a challenge.
1: I don't think we are. Well, no, we're definitely not um, trained to diagnose dying, and I think that probably reflects as it's. I mean, maybe somebody would even challenge it's a diagnosis. It, I don't know. Mm.
0: I think is it, it a natural?
1: It, yeah, it's, part of life. It's exactly. In the same, you don't you don't diagnose birth. I don't know. Um <laughs> I think probably it's it's probably not taught because it's it's not. Teachable or it's not appropriate for teaching and it 's something you pick up as part of your clinical experience um I think compared to when you and I were training uh, to now, there is a much heavier emphasis on good palliative care in general medical curricula than before, which is a really good thing. for example, I know in the IMt internal medicine training curriculum, they have a whole section on uh, managing end of life care and applying palliative care skills, which I certainly can say was not there when I was a trainee. Um, And the fact that it's come to the forefront, that it's it's a branch of medicine, it's um, a skill that every generalist um, should have, I think is really, really good. And I think part of that is recognising people who could be dying and giving active, the right treatments for it. But the clinical diagnosis of dying, I think, is elusive and probably not teachable. But I'm, I'm very keen to be corrected or educated on this by anyone who's listening who wants to reach out.
0: Yeah I completely agree I don't I don't know what the answer is I don't know what's right or wrong I don't know whether I did the right or wrong things that day what I do know is that I felt like it was there were two cases that I was outside my comfort zone um you know I'm feel you know you often feel as a consultant you've dealt with lots of different things you manage lots of different situations but for some reason these two cases made me feel uncomfortable I felt like I wasn't I didn't have I just felt like I wasn't managing them as well as I could be to be honest So definitely some reflective points about discussion with family, discussion with all the staff involved as well. I think the key thing, again, that always comes out in these cases is communication and the importance of communicating with friends, family, other staff. You know, and I did ask colleagues as well within the emergency department and just download what I was thinking and say, am I doing the right thing? You know, is this the right thing to do? Am I missing something? Am I, You know, and and that was really helpful is having that second opinion.
1: Yeah, none of us work in a vacuum. There's people nope. that we can ask for. People, mm-hmm. to, you know, when you are a, tra- a trainee, you can ask a senior doctor, but who do you ask if you're a consultant? Well, there's other ones. Mm. We ask each other. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
0: And I think the more senior I get as a consultant, or not more senior, but the more years I do as a consultant, I'm much more open to asking for help. Whereas yeah. when I first started as a consultant, I was like, well, I'm a consultant now. You know, I should know okay, how to good, do yeah. everything. But now I'm like, um, can I have some help, please? I'm really struggling. So I'm much more open to getting second opinions and third opinions and just asking for help.
1: Yeah, I think that's good practice.
0: Yeah. Fab. I mean, I think we've generated probably lots of discussion points. And I think this the discussion on this area could go on for a long, 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 long time, to be honest. Um, but I feel comfortable at the end of the day that both patients got the right care at the right time, in the right place, um, with good, appropriate communication was done
1: more than that
0: yeah we did our best and i think that's the key thing is that as long as you do your best for every patient that you see on your resources that day we can't ask any more of ourselves and those we work with
1: exactly i agree
0: anything else you'd like to say ben before we close this podcast
1: no thank you once again for your viscerally honest uh (laughs) stories and your reactions i think these are useful to hear um Mm that people hear us questioning ourselves and how we think and how we reflect. I think this is all really useful stuff. So hopefully people got as much out of it as we do talking to each other. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Thank you so much to everybody for listening um, to the Home of Medicine podcast. And we'll be back soon. Thanks for listening. Goodbye you've been listening to the Home of Medicine podcast, a podcast brought to you by the EFIM Academy in association with the European Federation of Internal Medicine, a leading organisation in internal medicine. Thanks for listening.